Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietling. Veteran UFO researcher Stan Gordon has sort of something in common with David and myself. Now, we got started in this UFO jungle at age of 11. He started at the age of 10. Is that right, Stan? That's right. It was a long time ago, back uh, Halloween Eve, October 30th, 1959, on my 10th birthday. And how I got involved, my parents would give me a uh, new AM radio as a birthday gift. And I was already curious with electronics and like radio equipment and whatever. And I was sitting around the AM band that night. And because of the Halloween season, there was some radio talk about strange, unusual happenings, ghosts and flying saucers and strange creatures. And I was pretty curious back then. I was pretty skeptical, but I was interested in listening to what people had to say. And I think the next day I ran over to the, the Greensburg Library to read all the books that they had on the subject and began monitoring books there and newspapers. And uh, over a period of time, I began to cut articles out of the newspapers, make scrapbooks. Again, as time went on, if I would see something in a local newspaper where people claimed to have seen something strange in the sky, I called them on the telephone and talked to them and kept little notes and uh, records of those reports. And then I was 16 years old when the incident happened near Kecksburg, PA, back in December 9th of 65. And I'm sure we'll talk about that somewhat tonight. But it was that case that started me on my lifetime pursuit to try to find some answers to the UFO mystery. Now, Kecksburg, that's been almost like a lifetime job for you. There's so many things were involved with that particular case. Oh, yeah. Well, the Kecksburg incident, it's very involved. It's very detailed. It's still unending. I'm still investigating. I'm still getting reports and information coming in on it. And, uh, I mean, just the, the information coming in the last several years, I could probably spend <laughs> probably many, many years just working full-time and trying to track down all these leads, which unfortunately is pretty much impossible because not everything is just from local sources here. Many of the sources are from people throughout the country who have moved away or have information, so it takes a lot more time to do investigations. Is it somewhat like, therefore, Roswell, New Mexico, where the case gets so old that people pass on, they move, whatever, and remembrances of what really happened are really difficult to put together. Well, you know, this is a, a more recent case in 65 than the, the Roswell event, and luckily there still are quite a lot of witnesses who were there at that time. Many were young kids or teenagers, and a lot of them have a very good recall of the details of what happened. But it is unfortunate that even in, in very recent years, a lot of the key witnesses have passed away. Many of them are getting older. Many of them are beginning to, you know, forget their, their memories of what happened that day. But luckily, I've documented so much of this years ago when these people had uh, the details uh, in their minds. So uh, that's something we have for historical records. Let's jump right into it, Stan. Let's, let's give some background to the case for people who might not be familiar with it. Well, that was back December 9th of 1965. It's late afternoon, approximately around 4.47 p.m. It's almost dark down in this area. And uh, just briefly, there were multiple reports of a fiery object from the tip of Ontario, Canada, over Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania. And uh, now there's a lot of information we didn't know at that time, which we now know. But uh, this object's coming in from Ohio. It moves in over the greater Pittsburgh area. And as this object's moving across the sky over Pittsburgh, the, the radio stations, TV stations, police departments, news media were being deluged with reports. A lot of calls coming in. People thought an airplane was on fire. Well, what we now know is this object 
proceeded out um, into Westmoreland County, and uh, it was observed over the city of Greensburg, which is where I live. It passed over Greensburg, moved roughly uh, southeast, out towards uh, Route 30 east of Greensburg, and then it made a turn to the south. Uh-huh. And it was observed by various people in these little farming communities, such as uh, Marguerite and Norvelt and from Mammoth, and it was continuing to move out towards the mountains over what they call Laurelville. Now, other people from there and out in that general area, they see this thing moving out towards the mountain, and then it apparently it turns and begins to track back roughly towards the northeast, towards Kecksburg, and it takes, and then it turns down and it drops down into this wooded ravine. Now, those people that saw this object descend said this thing did not come in at a high rate of speed like something just crashing, but to some witnesses, they described it as coming in almost like a controlled landing, like a small aircraft on approach to the airport. And then moments later, there was this column of kind of a bluish-gray smoke that came up out of that wooded area, and it dissipated very quickly. Now, once again, going back to that night, just to give you a little history before we get into what, what happened at that point, as I said, a lot of reports coming into the news media in the Pittsburgh area, and main radio station, KDK in Pittsburgh, coincidentally that night at the 8 o'clock, they had a uh, radio show called Contact, and the host was Mike Levine. And the coincidence was that they had a, a guest on the show who was Frank Edwards, who was a reporter who had written some books on flying saucers. So everybody was tuned to listen to this show about UFO sightings, and basically the whole program was devoted to the recent reports that came in that afternoon over the greater Pittsburgh area. They were reading newswire stories, eyewitnesses were calling in, they were interviewing witnesses, and it was very interesting. So as the evening goes on, this happened again about 4.47 in the afternoon, as the evening goes on, reports begin to indicate that Whatever this object was, it apparently fell in a wooded area outside of Kecksburg, PA. And then it got more fascinating that night because uh, on KDK TV, the late Bill Burns, a reporter, began breaking in with live reports, which they didn't do that often back in, in those days. And here the reports come in that this object had fallen in Westmore County near Kecksburg, that the military was now arriving on the scene, that there was reports that the area was being cordoned off and they were going to search for this unidentified flying object that fell into the woods. So that's what happened. They did indeed search. The area was cordoned off. So the next day, it's major newspaper stories and local papers, front page stories. It's making the national news wires. They talked about the military presence searching for the UFO. The official uh, explanation next day was that, yes, Something was seen, but it was just apparently a bright meteor that was seen in the sky, that there was a search, but nothing was found. Now, I can tell you, within days after that happened, there was a lot of talk around this community of people seeing a large military flatbed tractor trailer truck carrying a large tarpaulin-covered object away from the area at a high rate of speed around 1 o'clock in the morning. But again, that was never in the papers. So what we now know after interviewing so many, many people, and let me tell you, it wasn't the fact that people came to me. I'm 16 years old. Back then, initially, there was very few witnesses we knew. There was very few names in the paper. Most people didn't want to talk about it. So over a period of time, I would begin to get some leads from relatives or neighbors, and there was very little initially. But over a period of years, we began to get more and more information on this case. And what we now know was that after, after this object fell, that apparently um, uh, at least a small number of local people found their way down into a wooded ravine and came across this object that was semi-buried in the ground. 
also what's important is that happened in 1965. We didn't have our first eyewitness that actually came forward that had actually seen the object until 1987. I was holding a uh, a large. All right, let me ask you a question here. Why yeah. did it take so long? for because someone to come everybody forth. kept their mouth shut back in the 65 when the government came out and said there was nothing but a meteor nothing came down well you know how the ridicule is even today is but it was much much worse back in those days and people didn't want to be called crazy they didn't want to go against the government some of them told their, their relatives or friends that but that was pretty much it very few people talked about it there was rumors that something had been seen and something had apparently come down that night but no actual eyewitness came forward. So it was back in 87 when uh, I was holding this big public UFO display at one of the local malls, which used to bring in thousands of people, and we had a pretty good-sized display. We just had a, a little display on Kexburg and some information there, and I remember I was out for lunch at the time, and one of my associates was there talking to another fellow about Kexburg, and this uh, man and his family walked by, and he happened to stop there and look things over, and he was kind of listening in, I was told, and uh, he said, excuse me, you talk about the incident after by Kecksburg. And he said, yeah. And he said, well, he said, I was on the search team that found the object. So my associate, of course, pulled him over to the side. And the guy said, look, he said, I don't want involved. I don't want my family involved. But anyhow, they called me over right away, and I talked to him. And, and he did agree to meet with us and, and discuss the case. And that turned out to be Jim Romansky, who did not go public until 1990 when he went on that season premiere of the Unsolved Mystery Show. And Jim was not from Kecksburg. His story was that he was a member of a volunteer fire department, a mutual aid fire department, which all are little companies that are a volunteer. So when you have a major incident, a major fire, they all come out to assist. Well, in that particular case, there were indications initially that they thought that maybe there was a plane had crashed in the Kecksburg area. So they began to get volunteer firemen to come into that area, and they helped, began to search a large wooded area out there. So he was called in, his fire department was called in, and he was, met other firemen out there at Kecksburg. So the story was that he didn't know most of these other guys. They, they put him in trucks, and they left them off in different areas along the road to walk up in this large wooded area, and they had walkie-talkies with them. He said they weren't up there very long when a radio report came over that this other search team had found this object which had impacted in the ground. So they got directions and walked over there. And he said, they're standing around there. He's only, you know, a, a several feet away from this thing, apparently. And they're looking down from this little hillside, looking down into this kind of trench-like area. It's dark. They don't know the area. They have flashlights. And what Jim described, and Jim had always been a, a machinist all his life. And he said, this thing appeared to be approximately about 10 to 12 feet or more in length, about 8 to 10 feet in diameter, but it looks like one solid piece of metal in an acorn-shaped mold. He said, if you took liquid metal and poured it into an acorn shape, that's exactly what it would look like. He's down to looking for a downed aircraft and realized whatever this thing was, it was like nothing he'd ever seen before or anybody else. They knew it wasn't a meteorite. They knew it wasn't rock. And this thing was very much intact. Now, at the raised-up bottom of this object, he saw what was described as some very unusual, what appeared to be symbols raised up off the surface. He said there was no rivets, no seams, no fuselage, no weld marks, no way in or out from what he could see. Now, of course, he didn't know what was underneath. He couldn't see it. It was semi-buried in the ground. Because of his, his father and his background, his family background, he was a little familiar with, uh, like, Russian Cyrillic, and he said he was certain that that's not what this was. In fact, he spent years afterwards going to the libraries, looking at ancient languages and 
uh, pictures of ancient writings, and he said the closest thing it resembled was ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics. Stan, hold on one second. Um, let's slow down for one sec. So, at what distance was he from the object? Within a few feet. Thought, but it was dark. He's got a flashlight on it, and this is how he's seen writing in the dark from a few feet away. Right. Um, let's step back for a moment to when this thing was coming down. You say that it, it changed direction. Yeah. Right. That what? seems like a, a critical piece of information. The, the question is, how many times, two questions, how many times did it change direction, and, and what was the angle of change of direction? Do you know well, that? Well, what, what we know is this, at least when you can go back to local area. It's coming in from Greensburg, okay, so it's moving roughly southeast, Route, moves more along the line of into Route 30 east of Greensburg, but then it makes that turn to the south. Okay, it turns to the south. It's moving out towards the mountains, out towards Laurelville. Then it turns again. In fact, Bill, Bill Bullybush, who came forward a year later, and he didn't come forward. We got a lead that there was another local man who had seen this thing, but he never came forward. So we tracked him down, and he offered to meet with us. He never knew Jim Romansky, and I can tell you that's an interesting story in itself. But anyhow, when he was, he was right down the road, uh, not far from where it impacted, but he was out there working on a CB radio at the time, happened to look up at the dash and saw this fiery object moving from basically Norvelt out towards the mountains of Laurelville. He ran out the road and watched it, and he said it kind of stopped and hesitated, made kind of like an S-turn, and began to track back towards Kecksburg. Well, he got in his car, and he went to the highest location, which now has been nicknamed Media Road, which is high up in that area, and you can see all over Kecksburg and that surrounding farmland. That's what he did, and his story is interesting in itself. Hi, this is Roger with eFoodsDirect.com, and I just wanted to welcome everyone from the Paracast Show. Hi to Gene and David and everybody out there. Listen, we're here to sponsor this radio show because we really like what Gene and what Dave are doing, and we'd like you to help us support them. Now, we are a long-term storable food company. However, the foods that we produce are low-moisture foods. They're very, very high quality, and you can live on them every day. You can literally cut your grocery bill in half or more than half, maybe as much as 60%, by buying bulk foods from eFoodsDirect.com. But right now, a recession slash depression is on the way. We're advising people to sell the toys in the garage, hawk off the old jewelry you don't use, pour the money into food supplies before it's too late. I'm telling you, it could be too late. We also can provide water filtration, other needs. Call eFoodsDirect.com and let us continue to support Gene and David here. 800-715-4380, 800-715-4380, or go to eFoodsDirect.com. That's eFoodsDirect.com, 1-800-715-4380. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked, we answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. 
It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To get yours, go to our homepage at theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Select your size from the pop-up menu. Click Buy Now to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Stan Gordon, UFO investigator, with 50 years following the strange phenomena and we're talking about the Kecksburg UFO story. And he has a book, by the way, called Kecksburg, The Untold Story. That's actually a, a DVD documentary, which is available through my website. Okay. And this covers a lot of the material that wasn't obvious when the case first occurred. That's correct. In fact, uh, I won the EBE Award for this uh, as the best historical UFO documentary. And it's very detailed. It was done in studio. has a lot of information that's never been on television before. All right. So let's get back to this other guy you were talking about who lived near the area. Uh, Bill Bullybush. Right. Yeah. Bill's down the road. He's down in Mammoth. And as I mentioned, he had seen this thing out from the roadway. So he gets in his vehicle, and he gets on top of the high hill there at Meteor Road. And he's looking down into the wooded ravine, and he sees across the other side of the ravine, down in that deep, uh, dense area, what looks like sparklers, he describes. It's like, uh, kind of like a bluish arcing coming from there. He hunted down there, realized there's been nothing down there. He had his flashlight. It's almost dark, but he made his way down towards that area. So as he got down further, he stood behind this tree, and he describes basically seeing the same thing that Jim Romanski did. Here's what's so interesting. We met Romanski in 1987. We get this lead a year later from another source that Bill Bullybush has seen, but he never came forward. We track him down. He verify it. So he takes us down independently. Like I said, he never met Romanski until 1990. He takes us down from the media roadside and takes us down through the woods and through that long area and to this particular area. The year before... Jim Romanski took us in from a completely different vantage point. He hadn't been out in that area since 1965. This was 1987. Hmm. It took him a while to get his perspective, but he remembered certain details. And he walked around the area for quite a while, and he said, you know what, guys, I think we're right on the spot. Interestingly, that's the exact same location that Bill Bullybush took us to. Hmm. What, what makes the story even uh, more interesting is... A number of years before, before we knew the exact location where this thing fell, before we knew these witnesses, my team and I had been down that area, and we were looking around, and we came across what appeared to be a definite pattern of what appeared to be a trajectory of tree damage that came down into that wooded ravine. So we had a pretty good idea where we felt this thing probably fell, but we didn't tell these fellows anything. And it would be right in almost exactly that same area where those fellows took us to. And that was so amazing when they took us to that same spot. Hmm. Question for you. When they described this thing as being in flames as it's, as it's coming down, did people see very specific sort of uh, uh, trails or, or flame licks, or could they have been misinterpreting a self-illumination as fire? No. there was. Look, I can tell you. See, it all depended, again, on distance and location, comparison mm -hmm. to where this thing was moving in. There was a, a, a very good witness. His name was uh, Randy Overly. He passed away a few years ago. Randy was a very good witness. He gives a very detailed account of my documentary. In fact, he was on the Unsolved Mystery Show as well. And he was a young fellow. He and his buddy were playing down near Norvelt when this thing came in. His description is very detailed. They're down there. They hear this hissing sound way in the distance. 
So they look ahead and they see this thing slowly moving in their direction. So it's coming directly towards them and it passes directly overhead. Randy said this thing was only about 200 feet overhead. It's moving so slow that they got an extremely good look at it. It's kind of this acorn shape. There's kind of a vapor around it and there's various colored flames coming from the back and around it as well. Hmm. And it's like a low hissing sound, but it's moving very, very slowly. That was so amazing to him. And it continued again to move out towards Laurelville. So he watched it come from a distance, pass overhead, and move off in the distance towards Laurelville. Now, when Romansky talks about going out with search teams, were these search teams being organized and conducted by the military? No. These would be in the local fire department initially because they were looking for what they thought was a downed aircraft. Mm, okay. So right. while, while Romansky is down there, he tells us, they're down there looking at this thing. They weren't there that long when all of a sudden these two staunch-looking men in trench coats come down through the woods, and they look at them, and they look around, and they say something along the line that this area is now quarantined. And right behind these two fellows are soldiers coming down through the woods. Mm-hmm. And Romansky says they were so close to each other, they shined their flashlights on each other. And the firemen were told to leave, so they walked back down to that little town of Kecksburg, and he said he went over to the fire station. It was a small little fire station there, and that's where they had met all the firemen. They went back, and they looked in the area, and there was military vehicles all around the the Kecksburg truck station. And he also said there was actually armed soldiers at the entrance, so they weren't allowed to go in. In fact, if you wanted to go to the bathroom, you wanted to go over to the woods. So that was kind of interesting there, too. I had also interviewed the late Jim Mays, who was the first assistant fire chief at Kecksburg, who basically organized the search, and he verified that there were indeed military people who came into that truck station. He was there when they were taking radio equipment and other equipment into there, that they were parking the military vehicles uh, behind there in the lot, and uh, various others described that as well. Now, how long did it take for the military to get there after this thing had come down? Well, there's a little bit of, there's some question on this, and different people have different ideas. You know, the whole thing is, there was a lot of woods out in that area, and even though there was some military coming in, they may not necessarily have known where it actually came down. So, there are some witnesses that swear that within maybe an hour, hour and a half, they began to see some signs of military presence. But it was somewhat within a few hours that more and more the military began to show up in that area. And witnesses described military trucks coming in from different directions. So they apparently didn't all come in from the same location. In the research that you did around this, stand, did you ever try to find out whether there had been any sort of radar verification of this thing coming down on part of civilian or military uh, avionics? We did a tremendous amount of research uh, for, through FOIA, through interviews, Mm-hmm. And uh, Leslie Cave, the uh, Coalition Freedom Information, when she was working on this case thoroughly, they did a tremendous amount of uh, FOIA research on this. Very little turned up. The only official government document, interestingly, that turned up on the case is from the Air Force Project Blue Book report. They don't list it under Kecksburg. They list it under ACME, P-A-A-C-M-E. And I'm sure the reason for that is that... One family that was involved in this, which we know the Air Force interviewed, they had an ACME mailing address, but they were within walking distance of Kecksburg. So we believe that's why the Air Force listed under ACME instead of Kecksburg. And that report, which has a lot of interesting little tidbits in it, 
But it goes on to say that the search continued to about 2 a.m. and nothing was found. And officially, that's all the record remains today. In that report, it indicates that there was no indication of anything being tracked by radar. We've heard that from other sources. But at the same time, I've talked to a number of individuals over the years who were in a position to know certain things, which would strongly indicate that this thing was being tracked. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's tracked. It comes down, and let me clarify this. This is a landing or a crash? Well, I guess it depends how you interpret it. Okay. Uh, those who saw it come down indicated that this thing came in and made, it came in quite slowly. The thing was very much intact except for the tree damage reported down at the scene. But, of course, this thing made it a stop where it wasn't supposed to, and some people might interpret it as a crash. Okay, so having come down, it took off again? Oh, no. It okay. was there. Okay. The military comes there. They take it away? Yes. Okay. They were seen taking it away. I want to double-check this. Right. So various people saw this large flatbed military tractor trailer with this tarp over it, leaving the area at a high rate of speed that night. Now, I can tell you, in 1990, before the Unsolved Mystery Show aired, a gentleman approached me who I was able to check out his credentials. And uh, this fellow was a uh, former Air Force security policeman, and he told me he was on the security team that guarded the object when it came in from Pennsylvania at Lockbourne Air Force Base outside of Columbus, Ohio, on the morning of December 10th that they had been notified this thing had been recovered in Pennsylvania that was coming into the base. He said the security level on it was just amazing. He said it was actually much more intense than when President Kennedy had visited that base at a prior time. He said they backed this tractor trailer into this hangar. They had heavy security, and they were given the shoot-to-kill order to anybody that approached that hangar without the proper clearance. You know, there's a and, thing that occurs to me as you talk that – a common explanation for this would be that this was a secret weapon, mm -hmm. and that would explain the intense security around the area when they picked it up. And there's many, many theories on this, and we can discuss this thing for days and days, a lot of the information, things we know. I've talked to many people who worked in the space program. I've talked to aeronautical engineers and, and a lot of people who looked at data on this thing. And I personally keep an open mind as to what this thing was. Uh, one of the major theories had been for years that this was a Soviet Venus probe, which coincidentally re-entered the Earth's atmosphere, according to the records we got from the U.S. Space Command, about 3.18 a.m. in the morning in Canada. This happened about 4.47 in the afternoon. But there's a lot of information we've gotten in recent years that eliminates a lot of the, the possibilities. And, again, I keep an open mind as to what this thing was. But uh, there's still a lot of questions. And, again, why all the secrecy after all these years? It was just an experimental probe, something that from the United States and the Soviet Union, that the technology has changed so much. Why all the secrecy after over 40 years? Why not just come out and let the people know about it? Well, maybe so, but the point being here that we don't know from that that this was anything more than a test aircraft. Was there something about it, the way... It traveled that would lead anyone to believe it could be something from somewhere else? Well, again, what you got to look at, this was pretty large for something that was being launched. It came down and made turns and made a slow descent. It was pretty much intact. There's no rivet marks. There's no seams. There's no weld marks, no fuselage. If you look at just about anything that was being manufactured from the space program, you saw a lot of weld marks on them. Like Romansky said, this was one solid piece of metal. I think also if you take into account the witness reports that it was moving slowly in the air, 
Yeah. And by slowly, we're talking about what, like 40 miles an hour, 35, 50 miles an hour? It's, it's really hard to estimate, but they, several people said if you saw how a Piper Cub, a small airplane, is coming in on a s approach to an airport, coming down, it was mm -hmm. coming in about that speed. Okay. So that, that that's relatively slow for something that appears not to have wings. Oh, yes. And also, and as far as sound, you said that these two kids had described a, sort of a sizzling sound. Like a hissing sound. A hissing sound. But nothing that sounded like a propulsion. It almost sounds like something with steam coming off of it. It doesn't sound like something that where you, you're hearing a jet propulsion system. Certainly. No, no, nobody ever makes anything like a jet sound whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That would possibly minimize the possibilities of this being some kind of hovercraft. Hey, neighbors, the easiest online meeting service, GoToMeeting, just got easier. If you haven't tried GoToMeeting, now's the time, because the new version of GoToMeeting has fully integrated voice over IP. With this new total audio feature, you have more audio options by being able to conference through a phone or the web, save time, save money, and be more efficient. Hold an online meeting with GoToMeeting. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You're in the Paracast with Jesus and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. Stan Gordon, talking to us about the Kecksburg, Pennsylvania UFO case back in the 1960s, and we've been looking over other possibilities. Was it something from somewhere else that was perhaps recovered here, or some kind of test aircraft? Obviously, we have anomalies, and maybe we should focus more on those anomalies. Anything else that seems anomalous about this case that would lead you to wonder about it ever being something conventional? Well, yes, there is. <laughs> and, uh, again, it's one of those areas of the case that, you know, you're kind of not really wanting to discuss a lot, but it's something that's kind of important because it's been brought out and it's, it's one of the possibilities. But before I did the documentary, I should go back in time, 1990, when we did the Unsolved Mystery Show, there were many, many different leads came in as a result of the program. For people who had lived in this area, moved out of state, other people involved. One particular person contacted me. His name was Myron. He called me. He said, basically, he said, I guess I'm allowed to talk about it now. And he went on to tell me that he worked for a large supply company in Ohio. This supply company had sent a representative to purchase a, a large quantity of this special type of glazed engineering brick to get a Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. By the way, I did think I forgot to tell you. The object stayed over at Lockbourne Air Force Base in Columbus for a short time that morning, we were told. Then it went over to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Again, here's Myron now telling us about this large order of bricks. This order was put together, and within, he believes, two to three days after the event happened in Pennsylvania, another truck driver who initially wouldn't talk to us but later verified the story, he took the first load into the base, was escorted in, told where to unload this, these pallets of brick. He said when he was there that day, and he verified this to me later, that the flatbed trailer with the tarped object, and he described it looking like a, a big Liberty Bell covered up, was outside of this warehouse building. The next day, 
he and Myron both returned uh, being escorted into this particular building, but at this point, uh, the object was not outside anymore. They were both told, just do your job, don't be asking any questions, don't be looking around. Well, Myron was pretty curious. And what he was curious about, when he was seeing these fellas coming in and out of this building with these white coveralls, like rubber gloves, sidearms, various types of protective gear, and they were periodically changing their outer clothing. And he was curious as to what was going on. So at one point, when he didn't see anybody around, he ran over and looked inside this building, and up on the scaffolding is this object, like a big metallic acorn-shaped thing with unusual hieroglyphic markings at the bottom. And there's ladders going up. There's men trying to apparently work on this thing to get inside of this thing. And I guess he asked certain questions because he must have thought at first he had clearance and realized he didn't. And at one point he said he was threatened, and he was told pretty much that, you know, if you ever talk about what you see, we're going to throw you in jail and throw away the keys. But in, I believe it was 20 years, this will all be public knowledge. Well, of course, that never happened. But it was on TV, so he said, I guess I'm allowed to talk about it now. Question, Stan. Got to ask you a quick question. Sure. When he, when he described the shape and the hieroglyphic markings, was that information that had already become public in any way? I'm trying to think. That would have been 1990. There may have been a little while, but it wasn't to the major exposure on that TV show. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we've got into a lot of details. I'm sure we've mentioned about the markings on it, though. But there was mm-hmm. a lot of details he would not have known. And it was a lot of things, but his, his story gets a little more intriguing. And again, he wasn't the only one. The other truck driver who was very reluctant to publicly talk about it to me or anybody, he's the one who used his name, he still doesn't today, he later verified that he indeed also saw this himself and saw the activity out there. So we have different witnesses, both of Lockbourne and of Wright-Patterson, verifying this thing apparently came into Ohio and went over to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So basically what he was told was that they were using a special type of engineering brick. Basically they were going to secure this thing inside of the brick area and use it as some type of protective shield. So that was kind of interesting. But here's what, he, here's what happened. When we went to interview him from my documentary, he's on oxygen. He's physically in not in good shape. It's very noticeable. He began to tell us something else he had never told us before. And we said, and we said well, why are you telling us now? And he said, well, I talked to my family about it, and they asked me, why am I going to tell you now? And he said, well, because of my health, I may not be here tomorrow to tell anybody about it. But he went on to say, besides seeing the object in, the, in that building that day, there was a table there. And he couldn't see it real well, but there was a table. On that table was what appeared to be a, a, a small figure, maybe around four and a half, five feet tall. It was covered with a white covering. Could not see any detail at all, but all he could see was an arm hanging down with three digits, and the skin looked more lizard-like than anything else. Hmm. And that's all he saw. I tried to get him to exaggerate it, to change the story. He said, that's all I saw. That's all I could see. Has that information come out of anyone else? Well, there's another interesting little account that makes one wonder. And again, there's very limited information on these things. Back in 2002, as the Sci-Fi Channel was backing the Coalition of Freedom of Information on a very detailed investigation of this case, and it began to get a lot of news around here, more witnesses began to come forward who saw the fact that there was a serious investigation going on. So I had a list of names. And there's one particular name, which I can't use, but I'll call the, the witness Joel. That name rang a bell because I believe it was about 13, 14 years before that person's name came up as somebody who had reportedly been down in the woods and had seen the recovery going on, hiding down in the woods that night, 
And as I recall, he was contacted, but he said he, didn't, he and his family didn't want him involved. He didn't want to get involved. He was afraid of getting in trouble with the government. And, of course, he did not say it didn't happen, but he said he didn't want involved in it. So now the same name comes up. So I was very interested in talking to this guy. I called him on the phone, and he said, well, he said, I'm, I'm more willing to talk about it now. But he could tell the reluctancy in his voice. So I made arrangements to go out to the house. And when I went out to meet him, when I got there, you could see he was getting a little nervous. He said, you know what? He said, I was just going to call it because my family wants, again, they don't want me to get involved and talk about it. Well, I talked to him a little bit there, and we got a little more involved, and he finally began to open up. And that was the beginning of a number of very detailed interviews with him. And, um, I mean, he seemed to be a very responsible person, didn't want any publicity whatsoever. And he went on to give me a very detailed account of how he and his brother had seen this object going across the sky and changing directions that day. And uh, later they went out to the area where they heard it had fallen. And uh, he knew the area, too, because he used to hunt down in there. And I guess at some point his brother wouldn't go down. He stayed up on the road. But this guy worked his way down through the woods without a flashlight. He saw this electrical arcing type thing that other people reported down on the ground. And he worked his way over to see, described pretty much the same thing, same area where other people described where the thing fell. And he was hiding down there uh, around the trees and the shrubs and all. And he talked about various people coming into the site. Civilian people then seeing military people. And he had been in the military himself, so he knew Army and Air Force. And he watched as various military came in. His story was kind of intriguing. He said at one point as he's watching, he's hiding down there, there's an Army general that jumps on top of this metallic object. And he said this general had he had something like a long, it looked like a long metallic, um, he thought of something like a, a piece of his billy club, but longer. He's watching what's going on, and for whatever reason, this guy, he, he hit, struck the, the physical object itself. And it kind of just, it fell, hit it, and um, it, it fell off the object. And he said moments after that happened, he said that, like from the front area of the object, that the hatch opened up. And he said this was a matter of seconds, like a hatch opened up, I believe from right to left. And he said all he could see was what looked like a very long arm with two fingers. From his position, he could just see what looked like two fingers. And he said it seemed like it was stretched like it was elastic. And he said that the uh, hatch appeared to open from the inside. And uh, he said there had to be more fingers, another hand behind it to pull back the latch, but he couldn't see from his position. And he said within seconds, that hatch closed very hard, and you could hear like a metal-on-metal metal hitting sound. And at that point, he said that that officer jumped off the object and began yelling at the other soldiers that, hurry up, we don't have much time. And that's hmm. when he said, he goes through the procedure of how they began to prepare this thing, dig around, prepare this thing so that they could uh, get it out of the area and lift it up onto a flatbed truck. <laughs> this guy, again, I mean, I could see when I'm talking to him, you could see the emotion, how his voice began to tremble. He said, sir, I want to test her. I swear to God, I swear to God, there was something in that thing. And, I mean, if this guy was making up that story, he did a very good job. So, again, you've got these two different accounts that suggest the possibility there may have been something inside, but that's very limited information. That's all we have. All right, question for you. Um, in terms of other UFO sightings that have occurred in that general area, in, in researching these, and I know that you're really devoted to doing that in, in the state of Pennsylvania, 
Have you found other UFO accounts that would mirror the shape and details of this UFO? Or in looking through other UFO accounts from other places in the world, have you ever run across a report of a UFO that sounds very similar to this in terms of the, the eggcorn-like shape and, more importantly, the hieroglyphics along the bottom? There is extremely rare. I, I've heard and occasionally I'll hear and very rarely from other parts of the country around the world on occasion we'll hear people reporting what they describe as a bell-shaped object, but I'm not aware off the top of my head of any of those sightings involving hieroglyphic markings that mm-hmm. I can think of. Right. They're not a way. very common description. Right. Wasn't the description, David, about Roswell Craft referring to some hieroglyphic-type markings? Well, that was supposedly on the I-beams yes. that were re- <laughs> retrieved. That's what uh, Jesse Marcel Jr. Had, had described. Certainly not on the outside of the ship. There, there are some other accounts like... Um, there's uh, from the Rendlesham Forest case. There are reports of some kind of a hieroglyphic-like language on the outside of this craft that Pendleton had gotten very close to. Stan, in, in terms of the, the reports of these hieroglyphics, did you ever try to corroborate the descriptions of these things from the various witnesses that saw them to see if there were similarities or differences in what they described these these yeah. f- character forms looking like? Unfortunately, Jim Romansky was probably the closest, got the best view. Most of these people didn't get close enough. It was dark. They just looked at it, but could not, after all those years, remember what they were. I mean, Jim himself, he remembered certain ones. He drew them to his best of his ability, but he had no way to remember exactly the positioning or what they were. So that's something we've never been able to do. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hey, this is Jeff Ritzman. You're listening to David Biedney and Gene Steinberg on The Paracast. And just between you and me, I think these guys are a cult, so keep your eye on them. Stan Gordon. Joining us after, I think we've gone after you a couple of times to get on the show. We're happy that you finally found the time to come aboard. We're talking about Kecksburg, about Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, about this craft that landed or crashed, was carted away by the authorities, and we have heard no rumors as to what they might have discovered, have we? Well, no, of course we don't know. We don't know for sure. We know exactly what building that thing was taken to. I mean, even the one of the witnesses drew an exact map with the name of the streets and every building there showed me exactly where it was, but of course we had no access to the base, and where it's at today we have actually no idea. So you had uh, mentioned that Leslie Kane had gone after some information about this with her organization. She's a, she's a good friend of the show. We love the work she's doing. What, was she able to come up with anything, Stan? Well, you really should talk to Leslie because, of course, they were involved with a lawsuit on this case, which Leslie actually won as the plaintiff. So she is still uh, working with NASA in trying to obtain uh, various documents on the freedom of the Freedom of Information uh, pertaining to this event. So she'd be somebody you'd like to talk to and get the update on what's going on. Are, are you part of her effort to do that? 
I'm not directly involved in the lawsuit, but her and I have worked very closely together for years on the event. Hmm. What information is still coming forth about this particular case? Because it seems that a lot of it is fairly simple, fairly basic about what happened and what was done. Have you found any really interesting revelations in recent years about this? No, I, what I'm getting, I think, in more recent years, we're still getting more witnesses. And, of course, there's a lot of witnesses. What's, again, so intriguing is that over the years, there were so many small little details, which I didn't put out there, which so many of these people could verify. They weren't there. They could not be able to verify this. It's just amazing how one person verified the other people's accounts. And they didn't I talk to I, each other. There's no indication these people yeah, were Yeah, and I will still tell you this today. The high percentage of the witnesses I've interviewed have never gone to public. So most of them, even today, don't know each other because so many of them don't want any publicity. You've got to remember, a lot of these witnesses back then, they were children, they were teenagers, so many of them grew up to be very responsible people. I mean, one was a district attorney. I mean, I know some were lawyers, some were uh, teachers, police officers. So there was a lot of reputable witnesses who still exist today who were youngsters back at that time. And people still, they want to know what happened that day. They want some answers from the government to find out what exactly happened that day. Of course, when it comes to the government, they're not going to say anything except, well, it was just conventional. Is there any new explanation for this particular thing? There's many different theories that have been brought to me over the years. And, I mean, there's many, many. I mean, they were in January, of course, from a meteorite to, uh, of course, a Soviet satellite or Venus probe. Uh, one person swears it was a Soviet ICBM, one person swears it was a missile, another one said it was a projectile fired from a giant gun from a railroad car in Canada. Uh, there, there's all kind of stories out there, and all these people are sure that they know for sure, but of course nobody has the evidence, and when you go and look at the details we have, a lot of that just doesn't fit in with those theories. So again, I keep it very open mind as to what this thing was. When we hear about the reports about uh, Roswell, there are descriptions of these teams of soldiers combing through the debris field, uh, basically trying to get every single potential piece of evidence, and that this happened over a period of days. Now, in the case of Kecksburg, do we have any similar descriptions of that kind of a thing, or is it that they just came, took this thing out, and, and that was it? W were there indications that they tried to search the area, cover up the, the indentations this thing must have left in the ground? Um, actually, yes, and this is something that even in more recent years, more people have come forward. We know this thing went out of that area probably around 1 o'clock in the morning on December 10th. What a lot of people didn't know, even though at least two area newspapers reported on this, that and various people now come forward to verify this, that the next day there was still not a huge presence like the night before with all the military vehicles and all, but there was still... Apparently, a government military presence down in the woods the next day. And again, this is even verified in at least two of the newspaper accounts around here. But anyhow, um, for example, there was a small farm that was very close to the impact site, pretty close to the woods. And according to that family who was renting the house down, they had quite a number of kids in there. In fact, the, the mother, Mrs. Hayes, who's now passed away, and her son, John, who's been on several documentaries, verified she was a young kid who remembered these accounts very well because it. It completely I'd say it took a big, was a big important part of his life that he'll never forget because mm. he was so amazed as a child to see these military people coming inside and outside of his home to see all these military trucks, all the activity that night, and hear about it on the news the next day about a UFO falling. And he saw a lot of the activity that night, and apparently 
some military people were coming into their home and using the phone and reversing the calls because they never got any bills from it. And he was watching out the window, watching all this activity. The next day, now you got to understand, the woods was their playground. That's where he and the kids played every day. Sure. He sure. was down there the day before. Everything was normal. The trees were normal. Everything was fine. The next morning they go down, and the first thing they have to do, they had carols on the property. Well, the military had cut their fence the night before, to be able to get the trucks down to the area. So the first thing he did in the morning was mend the fence, which I have pictures of that old fence I mended it back years ago. They get down into the area, and he and his brother are walking around, and they come across this fellow down there, and he describes his instrument that he didn't know what it was at the time. That it sounds more like a probably a metal detector, but possibly a Geiger counter. And the man told the boys that you better get out of the woods because there's a chance of radiation. Well, the boys didn't know what that meant, so they ran home and asked their parents. Besides them, other people described seeing, as the night before, seeing men in what appeared like some type of white uh, protective coveralls working down in the woods. There is that information. There was something going on the next day as well. And, of course, you got to look at that morning's newspaper saying the search was done, there was nothing found, and that was it. Yet here's the military and the people still down the woods the next day doing something. Now, quick question about these white uniforms. Have you ever done any research to find out what sort of issue these uniforms would have been in 1965? We're talking about hazmat uniforms? It, it sounds something along that. One witness said he looked like moon suits is what he called it. And what is interesting is John Hayes, that young boy who was in the house watching all this stuff, and what he was doing, the, the military told the parents, please send the kids upstairs. Well, John wanted to see what was going on. See, he kept making excuses. He had to go to the bathroom. He kept going up and down the steps. And at one point, he heard a telephone conversation that NASA would be re arriving on the scene shortly. And he said it wasn't long after there was a knock on the door, and there's several men there with these white coveralls, and one of them had a NASA patch on. Mm. Now, does it look like what they were wearing would be akin to radiation suits? I, you know, it's really hard to tell. I can tell you another interesting aspect of that. That night, another witness named Bill Weaver was up on this farm road, which was not far from the farmhouse. And it was on this farm road where a, a number of people found themselves to get on. Most people were up on the opposite side of this very, this long, narrow farm lane that surrounded the woods. That's up on the media roadside. What they didn't know that night was the object had actually fallen on the opposite side of the woods, where all the activity was. It was down on the opposite side by this farm lane where a lot of the military trucking activity was going on. But a fellow named Bill Weaver, who was a very reputable person, he was a youngster, a teenager back then. He had his dad's car with him, and he was there watching the activity. And at one point, this big white panel truck pulls up with no markings on it. These four men come out in these, what he described as these protective gear like moon suits. They pull out like a box, and I think he said it was like four by five square. It had handles on it. It was like a stretcher. And all four men grabbed onto that stretcher, carried that thing down into the ravine towards where the object was. Now, it's too small for the object, and apparently John Hayes, I recall, actually saw two of these type of devices down by the house where the men were around. So the question is, what were they going to put in that box-shaped thing since the object couldn't fit into it? Mm. What indeed. What indeed. Um, when we hear about the Roswell incident, there are always these stories about civilians being told by the military, you know, if you say anything, this will be your life. Do you have any kind of anecdotal evidence like that from the situation where civilians who might have been 
in some way privy, for example, to phone conversations like uh, like you were just describing. Is there any kind of evidence that these people were told the same kind of thing, issued the same kind of threats as supposedly some of the Roswell people were? I can't say that I've had anybody that I can recall where people were threatened uh, with their lives, and so which reportedly happened out in Roswell. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that was typical, but there have been a number of instances that I've come across over the years where it seems some type of threat was done to certain people in the area. And this, of course, did not happen to all the witnesses because apparently the military at that time was going to, was not in control of what was going on with all the witnesses and different people coming in and out of there. But we did hear some things. I mean, one fascinating thing that is very well verifiable was the fact that John Murphy, the late John Murphy, who was the, at that time, the, the news director of WHJB Radio in Greensburg. Now, again, this happened late afternoon. It was after the 6.30 news that a, a local woman had called that station to say that her son had seen the subject coming down that Woodard Ravine, that was down that Woodard Ravine. So she called, and at some point John Murphy talked to her about her information. He called the state police, Briggs of Greensburg, and told him about the area where this thing now reportedly fell, because they apparently had been looking for a while, but nobody knew exactly where it came down. Mm-hmm. And John worked his way out to that area, and apparently he was there quite a time before the state police fire marshal and another investigator and small group of people, including the, the woman and her young son who had seen this thing, uh, came out to the area. John was there as those two investigators with a yellow Geiger counter, apparently yellow Geiger counter, walked down into the woods for about 16 minutes. And when he came up out of the woods, he approached the fire marshal and said, did you find anything out there? And he kind of tried to blow him off. And when he had him over to the side again, he asked him again. He said, you better get your information from the Army. Which the reporter thought, Why do I, what are you talking about? You're looking for maybe a fire or downed aircraft, and you're talking about the Army? So he right away is thinking, well, there's something of military interest down in the woods. Well, he wanted to go down. Of course, they wouldn't let him go. And they posted a state trooper there, and that was it at that point. So anyhow, he goes up to the farm marshal, and he says, so is this the end of the search? And I think he said something along the line, you better call up the barracks and find out what the update is. So he called up the Greensburg barracks, and he was told that you may want to come to the barracks, that it won't be long that they're going to have some type of a, a I'm not sure exactly, a press conference, but a meeting with some military personnel concerning this event. So anyhow, when he gets up to Greensburg to the state police headquarters, Troop A barracks, he said he saw both Army and Air Force personnel in that room. And they were talking about, the event and whatever, and of course he was told when he questioned the commander up there that there had been officially they had made a search of the woods and there was nothing there, and that's what he's being told. But he's hearing this talk in the from the people there that they want to go back out this small group of military, and apparently they were just a small part of the large other contingency that was starting to come in, and they may have had no even any contact with others. Others, anyhow, they wanted to go back out to the scene, so John follows them out in this little caravan, when we get out to the wooded area, and this small group of military personnel, which we know came in from the 662nd Radar Squadron that night from Pittsburgh. Anyhow, when he wanted to get down into the woods with him, he was denied entrance into the woods. Continue over. About a week later, John Murphy, who had kept all these records, did interviews that night, interviewed people, he and other people from the radio station put together this special documentary called Object in the Woods, which some of that actual broadcast is on my video. There's a lot of historical stuff on there. And anyhow, that was interesting in that when that was aired, it was aired in a censored fashion, that there was whole sequences, Mm -hmm. whole pieces of that that were censored out. And it mentions at the beginning of it that 
right before it aired, some witnesses at the last minute did not want their voices or information used on the air. One said they were afraid to get in trouble with the Army. The other one said they were afraid to get in trouble with the state police, and it was censored. But the story gets more fascinating because we now know, talking to different personnel who worked at the radio station, that apparently, of course, before the broadcast, some government men came into the station to talk to John Murphy. And they went into a private room, and when they came out and they left, he was very, very nervous and upset. It wasn't long after that that his whole demeanor changed, according to his wife and other people. This was one of the biggest stories there ever was. He was a, a major player in it, a major player. All of a sudden, he didn't even want to talk about it anymore. But what we also found out, we were told from one of the managers down there, that when those men came in, they confiscated some of the original interviews that he had taken. And so he was very, very upset over that. Oh, boy. Yeah. Stan, in the Roswell case, as the years went by, we have a situation where a number of members of the military started to come forth and uh, talk about this. This was also true in the case of Rendlesham as well, where we had very high-level testimony on the part of even the captain of the base, uh, Charles Hall. So my question for you is, um, have you had any success getting any even sort of off-the-record testimonial from any of the military who were potentially involved in this situation? I have some news sources and, or, and families who had relatives supposedly involved in this just in the last year that mm-hmm. I've had some new input, and we're still trying to verify some of this information. There are some other areas that I now know of that I'm, I'm not rel- ready yet to, to release so we can confirm it because witnesses, for various reasons, still don't want to go public on this. Mm-hmm. But I have talked to some people who had either direct or indirect association with the case who were involved in the military of it. But I can tell you that most of the people who are directly involved in the operation just have not been willing to come forward, even though some relatives have occasionally contacted us telling us about it. For whatever reason on this case, these people have kept their mouth shut pretty well. Real frustrating. You'd think that, you know, you'd, you'd get, at this point, start to get some deathbed confessions. I guess we'll have to wait a little longer for that to happen now. Well, time will tell. We're, we're hopeful that, uh, you know, we might still get some information on this. Before we go to hour number two here, and we'll be moving to a lot of other information, a lot of other cases in Pennsylvania, would you tell our listeners more about this DVD and how to get a copy? Yes, this was a documentary that I produced. It's on DVD now. You can order through my website, which is StanGordonUFO.com. And it's 92 minutes long. It was done in studio. It has a huge amount of historical information. It shows a lot of documents. Uh, has some of the actual broadcasts from WHJB from the Sunset Broadcast. A lot of very detailed interviews that have never been shown on TV before. So if you want to know the really detailed accounts about Kecksburg, it's something that uh, a lot of people will be interested in. I won the uh, 1998 EBE Award for the Best Historical UFO Documentary uh, for that production. Okay, what is that award, by the way? Would you explain it to those of us who don't know what it's all about? Well, the EBE Award is, was done through the International UFO Conference, uh, which they have once a year at the film festival. That's the Congress, isn't it? The, the right, that's the UFO Congress, Congress, correct. Right, okay. Uh-huh. So that makes you an EBE. <laughs> I guess so. Okay, so you have this site, and tell our listeners what else is on there that they're going to want to check out. Well, there's a lot of information there. Not only have I dealt with UFOs, but the other thing I've dealt with a lot have been Bigfoot sightings here and other type of strange creatures in Pennsylvania. We've had hundreds of alleged Bigfoot sightings that I've uh, investigated and interviewed people with, and some really interesting stuff with Bigfoot and UFOs. In fact, we just turned in my manuscript for a new book, which we hope will be out sometime this year, 
which is going to focus on this massive wave of UFO and Bigfoot sightings, which happened here in Pennsylvania during 1973 and 1974. It was an unprecedented wave of Bigfoot activity that went on for weeks and months across a large portion of southwest Pennsylvania, then to the eastern part of the states as well at the time, and some very strange things were occurring at that time, which a lot of this will come out in the book for the first time. I'll tell you what, we'll be talking to Stan Gordon more about Kecksburg, other cases, and Bigfoot on the other side of the Paracast. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked. We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, Separating Signal from Noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To get yours, go to our homepage at theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com. Select your size from the pop-up menu. Click Buy Now to place your order for the official Paracast T-shirt. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Stan Gordon has been covering sightings in Pennsylvania for 50 years, as you said, and we were talking about Kecksburg, but he has other stuff over at his Stan Gordon's UFO Anomalies Zone, which is at StanGordon.com, and we'll have a link at the Paracast. It's actually StanGordonUFO.com. Yeah, it's showing up on, on my browser, StanGordon.com. Right. Okay, but we've changed that domain, so it's StanGordonUFO.com, actually. Oh, okay. Well, right. all right. You know, we will never argue with domains. <laughs> okay. Back in the 1970s, when I was really young, and Stan was probably even younger, I was working as a radio broadcaster in southeast Pennsylvania, and the only thing I could say is that I live near where these row houses in Coatesville, Pennsylvania, were damaged by arsonists. Yes. I was watching that on TV, and I said, you know what? That could be, one of those places could be the place where I lived. I'll give you the address. doesn't matter anymore. It's 30 years ago. 22 Strode Avenue. Coatesville, Pennsylvania. Okay? Uh -huh. now, now, I live there. Then, I don't even know if the house is still there or not. Anyway, I remember there were a number of UFO sightings in the early 70s around that area in southeast Pennsylvania. And we're talking about here north of the Delaware border, about 45 or 50 miles west of Philadelphia. You investigated a lot of those cases. Maybe you can tell us some of the more interesting ones. Oh, yeah. Well, back then, I had founded my first volunteer research group back in 1970. It was called the Westmoreland County UFO Study Group. Actually, it was 1969 that I set up my first UFO hotline where I began taking calls from the public. So I've been taking calls from the public since 1969. I was so overloaded with reports coming in on that hotline that people calling about UFOs and anything strange and unusual from haunted houses to strange creatures, and I realized this was much more than I can handle on my own. So I decided I was going to form this research group of volunteers who could hopefully respond very quickly to the site of these events and properly investigate them. So I wanted to try to get all the scientists and engineers and technicians, and I began to follow through, and I began to organize this volunteer group. With my electronics background, we set up a, a very complex communication center in my home, which still exists today. I set up a two-way radio system where we could radio dispatch the investigators to some of the events in the general area. And uh, 
the group became quite well known, and over a period of time, we began to get quite a bit of respectability from the law enforcement and the news media around this area. By 1973, the group was already very well known. And as you recall, in the fall of 1973, we had that massive wave of UFO sightings that happened throughout the United States. It was a really big year for UFO activity, and it was making national radio and TV news for weeks and weeks. Well, Pennsylvania was being inundated from January 1st, the first day of the year, throughout the year, there were hundreds and hundreds of UFO cases that was coming to our attention. And uh, our we were good. This is all out of our own time and pocket, but we followed up as many cases as we could. And the reports coming in, many down around eastern Pennsylvania, many in the western part of the state, but throughout the state. And again, while we could identify many of the reports, as, as I always found out when you investigate these cases, any phenomena, Quite often, reports seem strange and unusual on the surface, but when you investigate them, many turn out to be either natural or man-made in origin. But I can tell you, back during that wave of 73, there were many very detailed, very close-up observations of solid physical structure objects. Some were daylight sightings. Some were very, very close-range sightings. There were landing cases. There was, there was actually two cases, trying to think, at least one case where an object hovered over a vehicle and physically turned it around on the roadway. That was quite interesting. Just amazing number of UFO reports going on. But then it was in the summer of 1973 that this most amazing wave of activity began that was unprecedented, still is unprecedented today. And uh, this all began on, uh, actually it started July 31st, the event, but I didn't get the call until August the 7th. How it all began I get a call from a relative of a person who said that this family member had a very strange experience on July 31st. This would have been a rural area outside of Greensboro, outside of my hometown. And uh, the man had been in the hospital, which he believed may have been a result of what he saw. And he was home that day, and I got the call, so I went called him and made arrangements to go out to interview him. So I got out to talk to the guy, and what I find out is it was a warm summer night. The guy had his bathroom window open. He's shaving, they're getting ready to get... Uh, go to work early in the morning, and he begins to smell this funny odor. He said, like, kind of like rotten cucumber, he described it. And he turned around, to look, and looking at the window, and there's these two big glowing red eyes staring at the window, which we found to be eight feet off the ground. Now, hmm. he had some dogs tied outside, and the dogs, surprisingly, weren't making any noise, which later on we began to find in so many cases that was a very common thing. When these creatures were nearby, even the most vicious dogs wouldn't bark or move. They were almost like paralyzed in fear. So anyhow, he, he runs out of that room, and he tells the other people they can smell the, the odor, but, of course, they run out and they see nothing. So anyhow, that was the story. So while I'm there, the family and other family members were telling me about an event that happened probably several weeks, maybe more than that, uh, to some of the young boys in the area. They were taking a shortcut over to the local mall. There was a lot of woods and shrubs through there at the time, and they heard this commotion in the woods that evening, and they thought it was a deer. So they began to throw some rocks into this brush, instead of a deer, comes out of this thing about an eight-foot-tall, very hairy, man-like creature with very long arms, taking long strides, walking across the road, and goes up around the hill, up behind their home. So I interviewed some of those boys, and they all seemed very, very sincere, told the same story. So I asked permission. I said, do you mind if I go up and look around on your property? So some of the kids followed me up, and we go up there, and we're looking around, looking around after quite a while, up the steep embankment, and looking around and find absolutely nothing. Just about ready to leave, when I happened to look down, 
to see the strangest footprint I have ever seen. And the kids were all amazed. And here's this 13 inches long, 8 inches wide, three-toed footprint clearly defined in front of us. Now, the ground wasn't very good. It was only really a room for one good track. They couldn't believe we were seeing I mean, we were all amazed. So I get on the radio and called for another assistant, and we took photographs, we took measurements, we made a cast of that track. While we're out there, we get a radio report that one of our investigators north of Pittsburgh up in Beaver County, kind of between the Ohio-Pennsylvania line, had that morning been investigating an incident where some kind of a big, hairy creature was seen looking in a window of a trailer about nine feet off the ground, and the police had found some strange footprints up there. Well, that was the beginning of this major wave of activity, which was going to go on for weeks and months until 1974. It was incredible. There were dozens and dozens and dozens of Bigfoot reports coming in from this widespread area. And luckily at that time, I was uh, managing a small electronics company here in town, and I was able to take some vacation time and work on this full time. Well, let me tell you, as this developed and began to hit the news media, the newspapers, the police stations were just being overwhelmed with reports. Reports were coming in on a consistent basis. A lot of people were inquiring. People were calling in report sightings. In some areas, it was like a near panic situation. Many of the reports were now being referred from the state police and the police to us to go out to investigate. And in some cases, we'd meet some of the police out there at the scene of some of these events. But what was really interesting was the fact the way we were set up, luckily, we were able to get investigators on the scene within minutes to hours after these events occurred. So it wasn't something that happened months or years later. You could go out there and see the emotion of these people. Quite often there was physical evidence, I mean, trails of footprints or other types of evidence at the scene. What was so amazing in so many of these cases was the animal reactions, where the, the cattle or horses would huddle in the area where they generally wouldn't go to. The cats would hide under the beds inside, but most dramatic were the dog reactions, and that's something nobody could have fabricated. Even the police on the scene were just amazed how some of these vicious dogs who should have been barking, going crazy, tearing off at people, they wouldn't even move. They were petrified. They were shaking. They were hiding in their homes quite often, wouldn't even move when they were close to these creatures, and that was just something very significant to see. And, Stan, uh, Stan, quick yeah. question for you about footprints. On your website, there's a picture of a footprint that was supposedly taken in February of 2002. You just described seeing a footprint. Did you take a picture of that footprint that you saw? Yeah. That footprint you're talking there, that was taken by another research group by Rick right. Fisher and the uh, Pennsylvania Bigfoot Society. And um, that was a different track, which was kind of an odd track, which nobody's ever been able to figure out what exactly that was. But if you go, I think, under it's called Mysterious Traces on my website, there is a picture of that three-toed track. I don't see a, um, a heading for mysterious. Okay, if you go into the search engine on my website, and I think if you put in Bigfoot track or mysterious traces, either one, it will come up. Right, okay. So what I was going to ask you is if, if there was a wave of these sightings of this thing and tracks were being seen, did anybody take photos of different tracks and compare them to see if perhaps we're talking about the same source. Oh yeah, we we took pictures, we took uh we took quite a lot of castings and uh many of them many were very very similar. It's it's a very very detailed story. That's why I did this book. It's it's very very complex. So anyhow, let, let me tell you a little more as it gets much more intriguing. And that's what the books are going to come out, and I'm going to reveal a lot of things in the book that I never talked about publicly yet. As we're investigating these reports, we're very open-minded. We, I mean, we knew that historically 
There had been reports of Bigfoot sightings in Pennsylvania. It didn't have a lot of them. You know, but in the 60s, we had heard some reports, and prior to that, and we went in this very open-mindedly, but of the opinion that if these reports were authentic, we appear to be dealing with some type of unknown primate, which has always been one of the theories. So we're investigating these reports, and as time goes on, we begin to get some very, very unusual reports from the public. And again, a lot of these reports are going to the police and they're coming to us. And so just to give you an example, uh, outside of Greensburg, again, a rural area, this uh, wife of a prominent doctor had watched this big boomerang-shaped object hovering over the house, around her house in what area that, this particular night. It wasn't long after she began to hear, uh, sometime even after this event happened, I've looked at my notes exactly, she began to hear gunshots right down the street. She found out later that another doctor had gone out in the backyard because something was disturbing his dog to find this large, hairy creature, and he began to shoot at this thing as it ran off into the woods. That was interesting. Then we had a really significant case, which had been in September, up in Beaver County. Two women were out in the rural air, were standing there waiting for a friend to pick them up, when they see this big, hairy creature, which, interestingly, was white in color, which you don't get too many of the white hairy ones, but you do occasionally. And it's running fast across the road, but more interesting, not just the creature, it has a small, glowing sphere of light in one of its hands as it's hmm. running into the woods. A short time later, this object comes across the sky, which at first they thought was some kind of an aircraft, but it comes over, kind of hovers, and shoots a beam of light down into the woods where this object had gone, where this creature had gone into. So we begin to get these very, very fascinating reports. Uh, all right, and then, slow, slow down, slow down. The object they saw coming in, what would they describe the shape of it as? They didn't get a real good look. It kind of was like a fuselage of an aircraft in the distance. Couldn't get a real good description, but then it slowed and hovered and shot a beam of light down into the woods. How big was this thing? Uh, I have to go back and report. So it wasn't very large, because, I mean, it was a little distance away over the woods. And mm -hmm. it's nighttime, so, or, or evening, it was a little hard, hard to judge. Mm. All right. There's something else on this page. I did indeed find the uh, that casting. Yeah, I'm looking at really, it right now, it's David. It's a really weird, really weird shape. It's really a weird-looking shape, yes. Really odd. And, and I would ask some questions about... Um, details, whether or not uh, there were skin fold, the very small skin fold details up close, or something that looked like uh, uh, basically fingerprints, footprints on, you know, fingerprints on the fingers of this thing. Uh, you know, this shot is kind of a medium distance shot, so it's hard to tell. But then below this is something really weird. Uh, these these two these things you're calling space grass. Oh yeah, that's interesting material. Yeah, what is that? That was What's from the story? year. That was from the year before. That's from this metallic material that uh, we had a wave of UFO sightings going on here in '72. This went on for uh, quite a long time. People reporting either uh, brilliant uh, solid spheres of light or formations of objects going across the sky. So during that wave, uh, some people were reporting some kind of materials falling from the object. So we would get calls on it, and we sent a team out. And in one particular case, it was up along the Chestnut Ridge outside of La Trobe, where, and I can tell you historically, the Chestnut Ridge is a hotbed for UFO Bigfoot sightings all across the, this area. That ridge is about 100 miles long from Preston County, West Virginia, to West Warren State in Indiana County in southwest PA. And it's a, it's a continuous hotbed. In fact, years ago, the Philadelphia Inquirer did a big investigative story on our investigations, and they nicknamed it Pennsylvania's Twilight Zone. 
Hmm. And that's always been kind of an interesting little notation there. That's almost like the so-called window areas that John Keel was talking about. Right, right. Sure. And John has even mentioned about the similar material in some of his early books, but it found in different areas. But anyhow, we recovered this metallic material. Some of it was, it's, it's all interwoven together. And it's really interesting, like under electron microscope, you have these thousands of little metallic fragments that are all interlaced together. And so they apparently they drop down in clumps. So we found this like on in the trees and the leaves, uh, in the grass and clumps where these reports were coming in. And we got different samples in different areas and different labs examined it. And it was mainly aluminum. So it was all earth material, but the whole mystery has always been for years and years. All these labs and companies looked at it and everybody said, well, we know what it is, but why would anybody manufacture it? Hi, this is Roger with eFoodsDirect.com, and I just wanted to welcome everyone from the Paracast Show. Hi to Gene and David and everybody out there. Listen, we're here to sponsor this radio show because we really like what Gene and what Dave are doing, and we'd like you to help us support them. Now, we are a long-term storable food company. However, the foods that we produce are low-moisture foods. They're very, very high quality, and you can live on them every day. You can literally cut your grocery bill in half or more than half, maybe as much as 60%, by buying bulk foods from eFoodsDirect.com. But right now, a recession slash depression is on the way. We're advising people to sell the toys in the garage, hawk off the old jewelry you don't use, pour the money into food supplies before it's too late. I'm telling you, it could be too late. We also can provide water filtration, other needs. Call eFoodsDirect.com and let us continue to support Gene and David here. 800-715-4380, 800-715-4380, or go to eFoodsDirect.com. That's eFoodsDirect.com, 1-800-715-4380. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Stan Gordon and... He is involved in the UFO anomaly zone, and we're talking about UFOs, mysterious creatures, etc., etc. Looking at this picture at your UFO anomaly zone site, and this is why, forgive the interruption, but it looks to me like steel wool that you use to clean something. This looks like these two clumps. You get the resemblance? It's really interesting material. Yeah. So when the labs analyze this, and they say it's mostly aluminum, let's get more specific about that. What did they compare it to? Because I'm assuming if a lab looks at this, they're going to basically try to compare this to other forms of aluminum. Now, you said something very specific, that they, that they said something about why would someone manufacture it manufacture right. like this. Right. Did they determine that this was machined? I believe, well, I can't say machined, but it was all man-made material. It was mainly, as I recall, aluminum. I think it was some silicon, a little bit of titanium in it. I have to go back years from now, I mean, from years ago, and look at the lab right. reports. But the closest thing I could tell you that would be similar, which we were able to look at, was Air Force radar chaff. So Air Force radar chaff was used uh, by the military to cause interference to enemy radar. So the uh, all idea was that they dropped that out of the aircraft, and this stuff would spread throughout the sky and dissipate. And But this stuff came down in clumps, which is completely different. Now, uh, is this what is sometimes referred to as angel hair when we hear about UFO accounts? No, this was, for a better term, we call it space grass. The okay. angel here is more of an organic material, something like spider webs. Okay. 
So this was definitely mostly metallic. Correct. Um, do you still have this material? Yes, I do. Have you had anybody look at it in more recent times with better equipment? Um, I haven't had anybody. Not I can't say in real recent years. I can't say I have. I've had different people over the earlier years look at it. Yeah, so, so it, it might, might be, be something to do again at some visiting. point. Yeah, yeah, um, because, again, just in terms of the ability now to, 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 obviously, all these years later, analysis equipment, spectrographic analysis equipment, uh, microscopes have gotten better because I, I guess what, I, what I'm curious about is that if there is any comparisons of this aluminum to other forms of manufactured or processed aluminum. Yes. Uh, you know, I guess that's that's kind of like the, the, the idea of trying to see what it best compares to at a microscopic level because it's just odd-looking stuff. Oh, yeah. If you could handle it and see it, that's even much more unusual when you can see it close up. Hmm. Does it smell like anything? No, it's not at all. Mm. You, you know, one of the reasons I, I, I told you we really want to have you come on the show, Stan, was while there has apparently traditionally been a tremendous amount of UFO activity in Pennsylvania, uh, it looks like in 2008 things have heated up. Now, we've seen this in other parts of the world. Uh, we, we just spoke with Scott Corrales, who was telling us we were talking with him about the tremendous amount of activity in Argentina in 2008, a real serious uptick. And it seems like that's a, you've got a similar situation going on in Pennsylvania. So let, let's talk about that a little bit. What has happened in the last year? Well, again, we had, I had information come in from 50 counties in the state of Pennsylvania out of 67 last year of, of various types of phenomena. That comes from various different sources, including those that come to me directly in my emails and the hotline number. Uh, predominantly UFO reports, but again, Bigfoot activity reported, for a better term, we get these reports of these giant birds with these humongous wingspans that have been called Thunderbirds uh, over the years, if you hear about, and they've been reported throughout the country and other countries as well. And Pennsylvania has always had a history up in what they call the uh, Black Forest region of the state, where there was a lot of reports going on for uh, many years. and. In more recent years, we seem to be hearing more of these giant bird sightings as well. A friend of mine, Kurt Southerly, covered the Thunderbirds quite considerably yes. in the 1970s. You know Kurt? Yes. Okay. I haven't been in touch with him for quite a while, but I'm aware, we're aware of each other, yes. Okay, very good. And we had a small UFO-oriented magazine back in the 1970s where we covered the case of the Thunderbirds. Now, is that anything like the Mothman no, the Mothman phenomenon is completely different, and uh, that was more of a of a creature that had the big glowing eyes and the big wingspan. So it was a different type of phenomena than the Thunderbird reports. The Thunderbird sounds more like a cryptozoological thing. Correct. And um, what are the attributes of this creature that people are seeing? Well, I mean, it, there are some variables in it. I mean, it's interesting that in some of the reports, even in recent years, some of the people actually said that what they saw looked to be more almost prehistoric. And one a really, a really detailed, probably one of the best reports that I've talked to persons who actually saw one happened down in neighboring West Virginia, actually in September or early October 2007. So it's not too far away. This gentleman I talked to, this happened around 8 o'clock in the morning. He was going down a road beside of Clendenin, West Virginia. And he's going down the road, and suddenly he has to hit his brake, because right in the middle of the road, only a few yards ahead of him, is this giant bird feeding on a possum, apparently a possum on the roadway. 
and he's startled by the size of this thing. He said the bird stood at least four feet tall. The head was over the roof line of his car. And I'm, I'm going to read over from some of the report I did. It's the neck seemed long and somewhat crooked. And the bird was covered with very dark brown or black feathers. The head was featherless, and there was a separation from the body by a very dominant yellowish-orange color of plumage. The beak was long and large and appeared to be black in color. The eyes were very dark. And um, the witness went on to say he couldn't remember a lot of details about the feet, but the legs were full feathered to its featherless feet, and the chest was very distinct and well-formed. But he said, what was so amazing with this massive wingspan? And what he did, he actually went back to the site and measured the roadway from side to side. It was 21 feet across. And he said, as he remembered, the wings, he said, were as arms of a human are attached. It had shoulders, it had a very muscular upper torso, and the wings were as if it was arms. And he said, they gazed at each other, and when it became startled, it pulled back its head to gaze at him, and it turned, and it moved in an awkward way, ran from the vehicle as to try to fly. It was more like a jumping, hopping run. And it moved about five yards, and with its huge wingspan, it was hard to get off the ground, but it finally lifted off and went up over the trees. But he said, actually, he said that the wing beat, as I put it, was very distinct, seemed distinct, not panicky or cumbersome, but distinct and fluid in motion. Actually, he said that the wingspan was as wide as a two-lane road, and the wingtips actually stirred the dust and gravel on both sides of the roadway as it ran and became airborne. So here was a very close-up, very, very detailed account. It was something flying off in the distance, which was very hard to get an estimate. Any photos surface of any of these things? No, unfortunately not. Now, we did have a case this past May down in Washington County, afternoon sighting. Another investigator named uh, Jim Brown investigated this case. And um, he interviewed a witness, and in that particular case, there were motorists pulling off the roadway in the afternoon to see this huge bird. And actually, as I remember, they said the, the, the physical appearance of it, it was more like that of a, um, like a large bat, like a giant bat than a bird. And one man was seen getting it out of his car with his camera taking photographs of it, running it after it, taking pictures. But whoever that guy was, he's never come, become public. Yeah, that's very frustrating. When the, the O'Hare case happened, November two thousand and six, six months later, we were hearing testimony from someone who was supposedly there, saying that all these people were taking pictures in the parking lot, and yeah. uh, none of these pictures have ever surfaced. Very, very that's, frustrating. Yes, and that happens in a lot of cases. So, one of the things I'm curious about, uh, uh, Stan, you're bringing up now. We have three different things. We have UFOs. And then we have two different flavors of cryptozoological creatures, a Bigfoot-like creature and these big bat-like things. What are your thoughts about drawing connections between these? Because usually when people get into this uh, a field as, as researchers, they, they will pick a specific branch, a specific subdivision of this, and focus on that, a sort of a subtopic. Now, you're... you're you're doing something different. You're basically looking at all at a few different things. And are you doing this because you're just interested in paranormal events overall, or do you see potential or even tenuous connections between these things? Well, you know, when I started a long time ago and I started to hear these reports and people started calling in on my hotline, people were calling in reporting all kind of phenomena. And as mm -hmm. years went by and I've interviewed thousands of people about all type of 
mysteries out there. Again, it's very detailed, but you, you can't eliminate one without the other. And so I began to catalog all these types of account, accounts. And I mean, it's not just there's cryptozoological. We've got UFO stuff. You know, I've worked on a lot of alleged abduction cases back in the late 60s, probably one of the first people working on some of these alleged abduction reports. I worked on, you know, alleged haunting stuff, which is not my main area of interest, and most of the time I refer that to other people who specialize in that area. But I've been involved in just about every aspect of phenomena you can. But, again, getting back to this Bigfoot wave of sightings in 73, very intriguing stuff, and I can tell you some really interesting stories, if you like. But anyhow, in some cases... We had some of the very few well-documented cases where both a Bigfoot and a UFO were seen at the same time and place. And as we all know, there's a great, great amount of controversy on this. But my position as an investigator is to obtain the information, to document it, to put it out so people can make up their own minds. I don't have the answer as to what this is all about. I don't know if there's any direct or indirect connection between the two phenomena. The point is, some of these cases do indeed exist. And I know it's not just from Pennsylvania. I've been in touch over for many years with other researchers in other states, other parts of the country, throughout the world, where some similar events happen. But I've had many researchers tell me that they were reluctant to publish it because they were afraid of being laughed at by their peers. Because right. as we know... A lot of the people in the UFO field don't want to have a Bigfoot connection, and a lot of the Bigfoot people out there definitely don't want to have a UFO connection. But the phenomena does exist, and we need to really look into these things open-mindedly to try to find out what's going on. Hi, this is Bill Burns from UFO Magazine and UFO Hunters. You know, there are several ways that you can get UFO, UFO Magazine. Magazine. Yeah, we know, Bill. We know, we know, we know. Just shut up. Just give us one way. Don't tell us you're psychic and, you know, give 8,000 phone numbers and take 15 minutes of our time when we just want to hear the show. Just tell us how we can get UFO Magazine in one way. Okay, okay. Just go to www.ufomag.com. Subscribe online. You happy? Yeah, was that so hard? Actually, harder than you know. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. talking to Stan Gordon, and he has Stan Gordon's UFO Anomaly Zone, and we're talking about UFOs, Bigfoot. We're also talking about strange creatures like Thunderbird. David, you were going to chime in with a comment there. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it does seem like there are parts of the world, you know, we talked to Ted Phillips recently about this Marley Woods area. He, he's looking at very carefully, and, and by the way, Gene, the day we're recording this, I actually got email from Ted that there have been some even more recent new developments since we spoke with him uh, that I don't want to get into yet. Um, chances are we're going to have him back soon. There's something that sounds fairly extreme that sort of indicates that, yeah, you have these areas where a lot of stuff seems to be happening. And this is also true for Argentina in 2008. It sounds to me, uh, Stan, like in the same way you were talking about that one ridge, um, 
where you just have a lot of stuff happening that is all over the map. We, we always have this discussion about whether we're talking about areas that facilitate things or if you have people that seem to have a facility or some special vision of some sort. So this leads me to the next question. Yeah. When you have these reports of different types of things happening, do they tend to come from the same people? Or is it that one person will see, will have a UFO encounter, another person has a Bigfoot encounter? Do you have, or I guess have you tried to tabulate this so you can see how many of these types of reports are a single topic versus how many of them that come in from a single individual or group of individuals? Because I think it's fair to say that whenever you get a, a, a series of reports that involve more than one witness, usually it, it, it probably makes sense to put more weight on reports that involve more than one witness versus a single witness. Right, and in many cases, even with a Bigfoot, we've had multiple witnesses. In fact, we have had a case of multiple creatures being seen in some events. But, hmm. you know, this is something that I began to look at very thoroughly back 70s, 80s, and I began to follow the lives of certain individuals who had some very detailed, interesting experiences. And one thing I found out, and I even found out with dealing with a lot of the, the people who had allegedly had some of the early year abduction events. And some of these people I kept in touch with for many, many years. And I, be, I began to find, and not in all cases, because you're right, there's some really interesting UFO cases out there where simultaneous witnesses unknown to each other within a short time confirmed other people's accounts. So that happens right. quite often. But I also found over the years that as you study the background of certain people, some of these people had a lifelong history, sometimes even other grandparents, parents, children, uh, throughout the, the family uh, tree there, that they began to have experiences throughout that family as well, that many began as very young children began to have paranormal experiences, allegedly with ghosts, some allegedly with abduction events, that later in their lives, they had UFO sightings, they had other type of paranormal accounts, they may even have a Bigfoot sighting, a rather strange animal sighting, and that's something that turned up in a number of reports. Mm -hmm. And to make things even more intriguing, I mean, we had cases years and years ago, I remember there was one case that there was a group of people outside, and this big UFO was apparently hovering very close in the sky overhead, but only two of the people in the crowd could see it, and the other ones couldn't. So you have events yeah. like that as well, which makes, yeah, you know, as we went on, it's the possibility that in some events you have certain individuals that can perceive beyond the normal audiovisual ranges and may be able to experience these things that other people cannot. Right. One of the things, um, and, and, and actually, sadly, uh, my own personal life, uh, it seems that uh, I'm one of those people who has had a range of stuff and and i'm not sure if they're connected and really it comes down to that being the whole reason i'm doing the paracast with gene is, is to try to untangle the stuff and and this brings me to a question i have for you um i'm looking at an article on your site about the um sort of an overall piece about mysterious creatures and ufo sightings baffled pennsylvanians during 2008 there's one thing in here about this glowing human-like form, a three-foot-tall, light green, lime green thing, which is really odd. But then later on, on that same date at about 8.20 p.m. in nearby Tioga County, witnesses observed a silent, bright, solid, cigar-shaped object approaching from the north, and it suddenly faded out and vanished as it moved overhead. Now, question for you. What was the size of this thing, supposedly? You mean of the cigar-shaped thing? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't. It was, you know, again, it was 
overhead, but not real, real close range as I recall. I have to go back and look at that report. But right. I think it was difficult to judge size. Uh, again, I have to go back and look at that report. I have so many of them here. Right. Well, the, the reason I'm asking this, Stan, is, and, and I'm not going to go into the whole story. Our listeners know it well. But in 1974, I had an experience in Caracas, Venezuela, that involved a very large, not bright cigar-shaped craft, but a very large dark cigar-shaped craft that was enormous that basically uh, faded out and vanished. So I'm curious about this because uh, there are obviously some differences, and that's why. But when I saw that, you don't read many stories about cigar cigar shaped craft simply vanishing. Okay. You hear well, about things speeding, you know. So I'd be very curious about that to, to find out. Uh, well, first of all, was that something that multiple witnesses reported? Two witnesses. Two witnesses. Okay. Two witnesses, right? Now I can tell you, you know, over the years looking at so many of these UFO reports, there have been some very oddball cases, very well documented cases. For example, somewhere daylight, where what appeared to be a solid physical object physically changed from one form to another or suddenly appeared or disappeared. So you've got a lot of these type of cases, which makes you, again, ask the question, what are we dealing with? And I just investigated the case uh, January 3rd of this year uh, near the little town of Bavard here in Westmoreland County. It was 1.30 in the afternoon, a sunny afternoon. This businessman's riding down this road. This is kind of a rural area. And to his left, he's on the telephone, to his left, he observed this, what appears to be an aircraft of some type, moving fairly low across the sky from right to left, and he makes a left off onto this small road, and he goes down the road, and here's this thing moving across, and it basically hovers about 250 feet in the air, and he's about that distance away at some point. And when he first sees this thing, he says it looks to be like a very bright metallic, kind of a cylinder-shaped object, kind of like a hot dog with a fin on the back. Hmm. A hot dog with a fin on the back. Sorry? A, you said a hot dog with a fin on the with back. With a fin on the back. That's what the shape looked like. Uh-huh. And as he's watching this thing, it's moving across, it's hovering a little bit up and down, it comes to complete hover. But he says what happens as he's watching this thing, he said it suddenly, he said it inverted itself. So what he told me was basically that it kind of flipped from the bottom to top. And when it did, it looked like it was almost a completely different shape. He said it looked more like, kind of like a saucer with some types of ridges or bumps or rivets, maybe even like ports or windows at the lower bottom of it, not underneath it, but on the bottom edge. He said they were about 10 to 12 in number. They were evenly spaced, and um, they, they were, you know, you couldn't tell exactly the size of them. But as this thing hovered there and he watched this thing, all of a sudden he said, it goes from a hovering position, then as he describes it, goes into a backwards J-shaped motion and shoots up about 50 to 60 feet in the air, then accelerates and takes off across the sky. Now, let me tell you, this guy was very, as he told me, he said he was very, very nervous and shaken afterwards, couldn't believe what he saw. He went home and told his family about it, and he, they all looked down like he was crazy. And he said he became very nervous and he actually got physically sick in the stomach after this happened. That's how emotionally how he right. responded to this event. Right. You spoke to this guy? Oh, yeah. I was up to the scene with him, went to the site and interviewed him there. Okay. When he was talking to you about it, did he seem pretty disturbed about it then? Very disturbed. What you were describing, the cylinder all of a sudden, you know, sort of on a horizontal orientation, then going vertical, 
I've read descriptions of sightings like this. Uh-huh. That then you had these things appear on the underside. I mean, as you're as you're describing that, as you're recounting that, I'm thinking, boy, I've heard this story before. Uh-huh. So, I mean, yeah. it doesn't sound to me like that's completely unique. Had he pulled the car over and stopped and gotten out to watch this, or was he still in the car the whole time? I believe it. I'm going to write out the pull the report. I believe that he stayed in the vehicle the whole time. All right. All right. So, so shocked, he actually stopped right in the middle of the roadway to watch this thing, which he shouldn't have done. And he, did, he didn't talk about there being a sound coming out of this? No sound at all, from what I can recall. Hmm. Yeah. Now, I can tell you a really interesting one. I investigated back in September of 1987, talking about a huge cigar-shaped object. This was in a very populated highway on Route 30 outside of Greensburg near one of the malls. There were various witnesses, including law enforcement people who were witnesses. So this thing is coming up, I believe it was early evening. I'd have to look at the dates now. This huge thing with multiple, multiple lights all over it is moving horizontally, coming across the road, going across the highway. So as it passes across the highway, it passes through this apartment complex, and behind there is a power substation. Well, interesting that this is huge object, as big as a football field at least, as it gets over there, it turns vertical in the sky. And mm. as it does, the whole area blacks out. The power goes out in the mall, that whole area for a few seconds. It then moves, keeps moving and goes back down horizontally and goes out in the distance. Well, a little later that evening, there's a complex behind that mall where they have, like, uh, movie theaters. They had a big power failure back there. When they went and investigated, they found all the master fuses had burned out, something that they had never, ever seen before. And I can tell you, the power company was very concerned about what happened there and the, the fact that the UFO was reportedly seen in the area. So uh, the fuses blowing out implying that there was this massive surge. Right. They had never seen anything like that before. Right. Now that was back, you said that was back in 87, but I want to get back to more recent sightings. As I mentioned before, it seems like there's been a significant increase in 2008. Is that true? I, I can't say um, number-wise. I mean, there's been a, a more of a larger area that reports came in from. I know uh, the Pennsylvania MUFON investigated a lot of activity down in the eastern part of the state. I was hearing a lot of activity surrounding uh, here in western Pennsylvania as well. But, again, I get reports year after year. Reports come in year after year. Probably 99% of what goes on the public never hears about involving any of these type of phenomena because even though the ridicule subject is not as bad as when years ago, still many people today don't want to publicity. Sure, but if you've been getting reports for a number of years, then certainly you could confirm whether or not there has been an upsurge. Last year, there definitely seemed to be an, ins- uh, an upsurge in UFO activity for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I mean. So, yeah. uh, and that that seems to be true uh, in various parts of the world. There's been an increase in activity in 2008 in the UK. There's been a tremendous, what appears to be a wave happening down in Argentina. There appears to be an increase in activity in New Jersey. I've read some really interesting reports from from Jersey in the last year. In fact, as recently as December and even January, actually. And I think it was in, in, in Morris County, there were a bunch of reports about these configurations of red lights yes. that that were being seen. And we know so little about this whole thing that one of the things that becomes really important is gathering of data. Just in terms of being able to do some sort of statistical analysis, you know, you, you try to look at, okay, where are, the, where are the sightings occurring and what's the frequency to try to determine some sort of a pattern. Right. I mean, have you have you tried doing that, Stan? Yeah, 
Yeah, we tried to do that years ago. The big problem is, which I think anybody really seriously involved in this research has to understand, is that there is no one place where there's, there's no one source for these reports. I mean, there's, there's sure. organizations out there, there's researchers out there, there's Internet sources. People don't know who to call. I mean, back and when I was involved back in the, in the late 60s and 70s and 80s, early 90s, and when I had my hotline out there in Pennsylvania, it was a primary place where people could report sightings so you could keep track pretty well. But there are so many different outlets out there now, there's no one way to keep track of this, and it's very hard because there's no way to separate the IFOs from the UFOs. Right. Because a lot of the IFO reports sound very intriguing initially, but if you don't investigate them, you don't know for sure if they're unidentified or not. So it changes the data, and it's very difficult to do that now. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Stan Gordon, and he has a fascinating site called Stan Gordon's UFO Anomaly Zone. It's not all about UFOs. We have Bigfoot there, all sorts of mysterious creatures. And I see, anyway, when you put all this stuff together, it sounds as if all these events are related somehow. And I guess that's a difficult thing to handle in the UFO field. It, that, it really is. Because there's a lot of, you know, specializing, which is okay. It's okay to have specialists. But I think we also need more generalists, people who could take a look at the overall picture, gather all this work, put it together and say, okay, is Bookfoot related to UFOs? Or just another mystery entirely. Oh, it is related? Well, then why is it related? How is it related? That right. kind of thing. Right. I can tell you, I'll give you a brief summary of, of, of the classic case that I'll mention thoroughly in my book, and that a lot of people know about it, but it's an intriguing case that happened during that wave of sightings in 73, if you want to listen to it for a couple minutes. Oh, please, go ahead. Okay, this happened October 25th, 1973, up in Fayette County in a rural area outside of Uniontown, PA. And uh, I had received many UFO reports that evening. But this call came in about 10.30 from a state trooper from that barracks who had just come back from investigating this UFO Bigfoot incident. And he sounded very serious, very concerned, said to me that there's a possibility there's something still up in the pasture, that I think you need to get your team up here right away. I had the opportunity to talk to one of the key witnesses who was at the barracks at the time, and what we learned was that about 9 o'clock that night, about 15 people in this little rural community had seen this large object, kind of a, a big red sphere about as big as a barn, dropping slowly from the sky towards the pasture. Well, these various people had seen it, and the farmer's son and his wife were driving down the farm lane. They had seen it coming down, and... Uh, so he went over and gathered a couple uh, young fellows, and they decided they were going to go up into the pasture and see what this thing was all about. 
So before they did, he went into the, his dad's farm. He picked up a .30-06, grabbed some ammunition, which included some tracer rounds as well, and they proceeded to move uh, down towards the pasture. They they left the truck with the lights on angled to get an idea so they could see a path going up, and as they're walking up there, they notice that the, the power seems to be draining for the vehicle. They hear in the distance what appear to be like baby crying sounds, and they hear this other high-pitched noise. The dogs are going crazy in the distance. And as they walk up to the pasture, they see this object, which appears to be sitting on the ground, but it now looks like a big white hemisphere, like a half a dome, brilliant, illuminating the whole area. There's this high-pitched sounding described something like a loud lawnmower, and they're just amazed. They're watching this thing. Uh, I believe it's about 250 feet away, as big as a house. Bigger house is about 100 feet or so in diameter, as I said. They're scratching their heads. The boys are very upset watching this thing. Why is they watching this thing? That's amazing in itself. But then they notice something else, which causes their attention over to a fence line about 75 feet away. So these fence posts are about six feet tall. They notice these two tall figures beginning to slowly walk in their direction. Mm. First they thought they were bare. Then they realize these things are, they're walking, they're bipedal, they're covered with long, Batted hair, they have glowing green eyes, are making this baby crying sound back and forth to each other. They have very long arms, almost down to the ground, and they're walking one behind the other. One's around eight, eight and a half feet tall, the other one's probably around seven feet tall. Hmm. They're all getting really upset. The one boy's getting hysterical and he runs out of the field. The other boy's yelling at the farmers and shoot him, shoot him. We fire the tracer. There's just that flash of light. Fires the second tracer, and the moment he fires that tracer, the largest of the two creatures reaches out as though to grab at that tracer. And the moment it does that, the object in the field disappears. It doesn't take off. It just vanishes. It's gone. The light huh. goes out. The sound goes out. It's gone. So at that point, the two creatures turn around slowly, start walking back along the fence line towards the woods. Well, the fellow shoots right into him with uh, regular ammo. He certainly hit it, at least the big one, but no indication, nothing slowed it down, no indication even when it was hurt. So at that point, they run out of there. They go back to the farmhouse, tell the family what happened. They take them to another home. They call the state police. So about 45 minutes later, the trooper arrives on the scene, and he says, I'm here to investigate the report. And the witness said, forget about it. You can think I'm nuts. And the trooper said, we had a report last night of two similar creatures up on a mountaintop. I need to go to investigate. So they went up in the troop car, go up into the area. They go over to the area where the object had been. And as the trooper told me, he said, the whole area where the object was self-luminescent glowing, about 100, 150 feet in diameter. He said it was bright enough that if he had a newspaper, he could have sat down and read the newspaper for the light coming off of it. He said it appeared to be a little warmer temperature-wise inside that area. The animals, the farm animals, wouldn't go anywhere near it. So that's amazing in itself. So they go over along the area where the creatures were to look around, and it's all wooded around the side of the pasture. As they're walking, they hear something heavy walking with them. They stop. It takes a few more steps. They move. It moves. At this point... The trooper never mentioned anything else, but I believe in the witness, the prior witness, told me the story. He's never changed his story until he died. He said this is exactly what happened. What happened at that point was they heard a noise, turned the flashlight directly in front of them. There's a fence in front of them. On the opposite side of the fence is apparently the largest of the two creatures. So the farmer's son had one, one bullet left. He fired right at this thing and hit it. And he said he could hear the thump and the thing rushed and bounced off the fence, and they ran and got into the troop car and got out of there. So they went back to the barracks, 
when they got there, they were both separately interviewed, the trooper and the witness in two different rooms. After that happened, I was notified. So it was late that night. It was quite a distance away. Had to gather our team together to get our equipment all set up and our radiation equipment and everything, and everything checked out. And by the time we got up, there was early morning. But just to make the story short, and there's a lot more to the story, we got up into the area, we checked the witness radiation, checked air radiation, everything was normal, just normal background. The glow was now gone, the animals still would not ever, ever go anywhere near that area. There's a lot more to the story. Dr. Berthold Schwartz, who's a well-known psychiatrist who was involved in a lot of these type of phenomena years ago, he came up on his own accord and spent about a week up here interviewing all the people involved in a big study of this case, went away fully convinced these people are telling the truth, and it's a, it's a very interesting report. There are some similarities here. You just in what you were just describing. A, I thought there were some direct similarities with some of the things that were reported on the Skinwalker Ranch. Correct. Uh, in that book that George Knapper ha had written. But also, when we talked to Ted Phillips about this Marley Woods situation he's investigating, there was a an account there about these weird white creatures they weren't i don't think they were bipedal i think they, they they were they were they had four legs and but there was a description of uh somebody shooting one of these things it, it's almost as if it didn't even notice it had been hit yes and so it, it's interesting that what you're describing there bears some similarities to what ted described which you know when i hear that what i think and i'm just going to throw this out on the table it's almost as if the creature is not really there. It's as if it, you're shooting at something that's not really solid. Right, and this is something I've been talking about for years. You know, when you look at the Bigfoot phenomena, again, I'm, I'm reluctant to say this. When you read the book I'm coming out with, it's going to cover these reports, a lot of things you've never heard about before in detail. And I ask the question, just like the skeptics say, well, you have all these Bigfoot reports, but why has nobody come up with a body? I don't recommend shooting at it, but why has nobody shot one, found a dead body, hit one with a car and have a body remaining behind? Why not? And when you read some of the accounts that I have in the book and some of the things that happened we found while we were investigating, it brings up the possibility that we're dealing with something that may not be a normal flesh and blood animal. It may not necessarily mean that all of the Bigfoot specimens are like that. And I mean, there's similarities but differences. But at the same time, you got asked a question. Of all of these Bigfoot-like creatures seen around the world, the same thing. Nobody has come up with any really tangible physical evidence and no bodies. And why is that? Well, I think one could make the argument, though, that one of the reasons for that, especially given that most of the Bigfoot sightings seem to, to occur in fairly desolate remote areas, is that if something died out in the open, it'd be picked clean within a few days. I mean, and maybe at the best you'd have would be a skeleton, but even that too, you know, gets torn apart. So when people bring up this idea, well, there's no body, well, mm -hmm. I think you can make some, some excuses for that, but I don't know, sometimes I wonder, and we talked about this a lot on the show, whether we can even trust our own senses at this point. One of the things that seems to come up over and over again in talking about these things is that when human perception gets involved, things get a little murky. It, it sounds to me like part of what you're describing, Stan, is a situation where people are seeing things and there's a bunch of gray area around it. You know, some of these things, you know, w when you have a structured craft, okay, well, that's one sort of UFO morphology that we've read about a lot that makes sense. But when you start to have, you're describing the creature running with the, uh, that light in its hand, like a exactly. ball of light in its hand, 
that is just so squarely in the realm of, of high strangeness that exactly. it's really hard to sort of draw any definitive conclusion what that is. Yeah. I said years ago, the more I know about the phenomenon, the more mysterious it is. And I've said for a long time, while you can explain the majority of these reports, so that percentage of cases that remain in the unknown category, mm-hmm. and there may well be more than one origin for what these unknown objects represent. You know, we might be dealing with some, there might be a small percentage that might be extraterrestrial. Some of these things may be other unknown type of natural phenomena. Some, you know, we question, are they, is there any possibility we're dealing with some type of interdimensional or time travelers or something? We're dealing with a phenomena that seems to have both a physical and a non-physical aspect to it. Well, and of course, at that point, what your definition of physical is is a whole other story, of course. Exactly. And I've said it on the show before, rap on that tabletop, say, this is a good solid tabletop, and the answer is, no, it's not. It's mostly empty space. So when when we talk about physicality, the problem is that the the way that people think of physical matter is not really what's going on. And we don't want to throw out the you know interdimensional term because then that that is a, a scary word for people. Some people consider that to be a sort of a flag word that oh oh they're about to talk about you know stuff that is even beyond pseudoscience. But yeah, the fact of the matter is that we don't understand how most of this exactly. works. We don't get it. And, and I think what you just said before is exactly relevant in that, and that's one of the things we try to do on the Paracast is uh, decouple the term UFO from extraterrestrial, because you can't make that assumption all of the time. In fact, there are a lot of reasons to believe that perhaps this idea of uh, a predominant number of UFO sightings being extraterrestrial nature is, in essence, uh, a planned deception. It could well be, and we've heard that for many years in that discussion on that. Yeah, yeah, so... The mystery continues, doesn't it, Gene? And <laughs> if we could ever get together, I mean, you've been doing good for 50 years now. Where do we take it? From here, is there going to be something in our lifetime? And my lifetime possibly will be a little shorter than yours, Stan, assuming that we have the same number of years in our genes. But whatever were to happen, how are we going to get it together after all these years and figure out what's happening? I'm hopeful that while we're still here that we may have some answers. Hopefully someday the government will come out and at least open up to a degree on what they may know about the subject. And it may well be that they themselves don't have all the answers to what's going on, which is a reason for someone to cover up. Well, okay. Yeah, and we have to see what happens with disclosure, which is something I don't necessarily believe in. I do believe we're just about out of time, Stan, so give a pitch for your site and for your content again. Okay. Well, if they want to call my hotline, it's 724-838-7768. deal mainly, however, with cases in Pennsylvania. If there's any people who have any information on Kicksburg in particular, I'd like to talk with them. My website is stangordonufo.com. They can email me through the website as well. Now, let's look at this also. You're going to be also coming out with this book. Tell us when it will be appearing. Well, we just went to the book agent, so we're hopeful that it will be out hopefully sometime this year. So we'll just have to keep our eyes on It's basically um, tentative title with strange intrusions, but uh, that's not definite at this point. Okay, and the site again is located at? StanGordonUFO.com. Strange intrusion sounds like what happens whenever you call me on the phone. I get a strange intrusion from you. So I don't know, Stan. Uh, you might want to, and in fact, you could potentially use Gene's face on the cover of your book as a as a human uh, 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 Bigfoot hybrid. I think that would kind of work in with strange intrusions, don't you, Gene? Well, some people think I am a strange intruder. <laughs> they might be right. You know, sometimes my wife 
says, Gene, you're a strange intruder. Get out of here and go after your UFOs and call me back next week and give me a check, by the way. The, show me the show me the money. No, that's that's ridiculous. <laughs> that, that's you know, I, I'm just I'm just being I'm just being absurd because I was born that way. Yes, and right. I can't help it. Stan Gordon, thank you so much for a very informative two hours and for joining us this week on the Paracast. Absolutely. Thank you, Stan. All right, thank you for having me. Have a good evening. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.